Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchange's World News Roundup for Thursday, September 28th, 2023. Uh, let's get into it. There's a couple of anniversaries. On September 28th, 1538 is the anniversary of the Battle of Preveza, uh, which was a naval battle between the Ottomans and the Venetians that took place uh, off the coast of Greece, off the west coast of Greece. The Ottomans won a um, kind of anticlimactic victory, the Admiral of the uh, Venetian slash Holy League. There were Habsburgs, the Genoa participated, the Papal States. There were a lot of different contributors, mainly Venice. Uh, but the commander was the Genoese Admiral Andrea Doria, who uh, hated Venice, so it's kind of an interesting choice to make him commander of this fleet that was supposed to support Venice in its war with the Ottomans. Anyway, he decided to pack up and leave rather than lose any more ships uh, to the Ottomans. So it was somewhat anti anticlimactic. Uh, end to the battle, but it did ensure that the Ottomans would emerge victorious uh, from uh, the third of seven wars that they fought against the Venetians. Uh, they claimed most of the Venetian possessions in the Greek islands, uh, except the one they really wanted, which was Corfu. That's an interesting story. They never were able to take Corfu, uh, but meh, a lot of other territory uh, wound up going to the Ottomans uh, as a result of this battle. Uh, on September 28th, 1961, a group of Syrian military officers carried out a coup that pulled Syria out of the United Arab Republic, the uh, short-lived political union between Syria and Egypt that had been formed in 1958 uh, under the auspices of Gamal Abdel Nasser. In addition to ending the UAR, the coup kicked off about 18 months of political chaos in Syria that finally... Uh, sort of ended, I guess, uh, with the March 1963 coup that brought the Ba'ath Party to power. Uh, on to the news. In the Middle East, in Yemen, fighters affiliated with the secessionist Southern Transitional Council battled al-Qaeda members in Yemen's Abyan province late Wednesday, reportedly retaking some areas that had been seized by jihadists, uh, the jihadists in recent weeks. At least five STC fighters were killed, along with an unknown number of al-Qaeda insurgents. The STC and al-Qaeda have been clashing with some frequency in Abyan and Shabwa provinces uh, of late. In Israel-Palestine, Israeli authorities reopened the Erez checkpoint, the main crossing for people traveling between Gaza and Israel proper, on Thursday. That appears to be easing the tensions that have fueled the protests that have been taking place near the Gaza fence line for the past couple of weeks. Several thousand Gaza residents work in Israel proper, and their inability to pass through Erez is added to the enclave's overall economic misery. Uh, officials from Egypt and Qatar have been spending the last several days meeting with Israeli and Hamas officials to try to resolve the situation, and late Wednesday they reached agreement on a reopening of Erez in return for a suspension of the protests. Uh, Israeli authorities will probably close the checkpoint again on Friday for the Sukkot holiday, so there is a chance that this crisis could flare up again in the coming days. In Saudi Arabia, in what appears to be another step toward implementing a domestic nuclear program, uh, yippee, Saudi Energy Pr Minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman announced earlier this week that the kingdom has decided to open itself up to a full nuclear safeguards regime with the International Atomic Energy Agency. This means more intensive IAEA oversight of the kingdom's nuclear activities, which right now are governed by the agency's light-touch, small-quantities protocol, as the Saudis do not yet possess a nuclear 
nuclear reactor. Given the kingdom's off-stated intention to develop a robust nuclear program, maybe including weapons, I don't know. Anyway, the IAEA has been pushing for a more normal safeguard arrangement for some time now. The U.S. would presumably insist on that as a precondition for helping the Saudis to stand up a nuclear program with a domestic uranium enrichment component, as is reportedly under discussion. In Iran, the Biden administration on Wednesday blacklisted five entities and two individuals allegedly involved in helping the Iranian government obtain drone components in violation of U.S. sanctions. Iran's drone program has taken on new salience given that the Russian military is most likely using Iranian Shahed-136 devices, or at least knockoffs of them, in Ukraine. Uh, the network that was sanctioned on Wednesday includes entities in China, Turkey, and the UAE in addition to Iran. On to Asia and Azerbaijan, the president of the secessionist Republic of Artsakh, Samvel Shahramanyan, uh, signed a decree on Thursday dissolving his unrecognized government effective January 1st. This was inevitable following the Azerbaijani military seizure of the Nagorno-Karabakh region last week, and it remains to be seen whether there will still be any Armenians left in Karabakh. Uh, by the time it's dissolved. Uh, at last count, over 75,000 people had fled Karabakh for Armenia, and that number will likely continue to rise. In Taiwan, the Taiwanese military unveiled its first domestically produced submarine on Thursday, the diesel-electric Narwhal. Uh, while largely symbolic, it's not like one submarine is going to stop or even deter a Chinese invasion should one materialize. It is nevertheless a significant milestone for the Taiwanese defense industry, and it is also a significant political achievement for President Tsai Ing-wen and may help boost her preferred successor, William Lai or Lai Ching-tae, uh, in next year's presidential election. Uh, in China, according to the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. and Chinese governments are making headway toward a presidential summit. I'll read you just a bit of this uh, piece that they ran today. Beijing and Washington are paving the way for Chinese leader Xi Jinping to visit the U.S., moving ahead with high-level official exchanges and taking other steps to improve the tone of their turbulent relations. Both sides are discussing a trip to Washington by Xi's top economic policy aide, Vice Premier He Lifeng, according to people briefed on the matter. He would be the most senior uh, official, or Hay would be the most senior official. Actually, actually, I don't know which one the author meant here. Sorry, uh, he would be the most senior official to travel to the U.S. since President Biden took office. Meantime, planning is also underway for Foreign Minister Wang Yi to visit Washington in October to prepare for a Xi summit with Biden, the people said. China facilitated the transfer this week of an American soldier from North Korean custody, U.S. officials said. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had raised the soldier's case in a meeting 10 days ago with Wong, the official said. Uh, the latest developments push forward the momentum both governments have been trying to create after months of across-the-board tensions and suggest an increased likelihood that she will attend a summit of Asia-Pacific leaders to be held in San Francisco in November. Beyond that gathering, Beijing is seeking a separate high-profile summit with Biden, something both governments see as a potential boost to the months of tentative efforts to stabilize ties. So something to look forward to, uh, I guess. Uh, in North Korea, the aforementioned soldier, uh, Travis King, uh, has, has arrived back in the U.S. Uh, after departing North Korea on Wednesday. Uh, King was due to receive military discipline over an assault charge in South Korea before he apparently attempted to defect to North Korea back in July. It's unclear whether he's still facing that or any 
indeed any discipline. Uh, also unclear uh, is why North Korean officials decided to expel him, as they've characterized what happened yesterday. Pyongyang didn't make much propaganda hay out of King's defection, and there's no overt quid pro quo involved in his return, or at least none that's manifested so far. Analysts seem to think the North Koreans decided that whatever value they might have extracted from keeping King was outweighed by the hassle it would bring. Releasing him without getting anything from Washington might even be a political statement of its own, essentially saying that they're secure enough geopolitically that they don't need to try to wring concessions out of the U.S. anymore. On to Africa and Sudan. The Biden administration also blacklisted two entities and one person in connection with the conflict in that country on Thursday. Both companies are alleged to have procured weapons for the Rapid Support Forces paramilitary group, while the individual, who is ex-Foreign Minister Ali Ahmed Karti, is head of the military-aligned Sudanese Islamic movement and is accused of hindering negotiations, or potential negotiations, I should say, between the RSF and the military. In Mali, three Malian military outposts have come under attack over the past two days in various parts of the country. Uh, the military says its forces successfully resisted a major attack on a base in the Timbuktu region on Wednesday. That attack was subsequently claimed by the Al-Qaeda-aligned Jamaat Nusrat al-Islam al-Muslimin group, which claims that its fighters seized the base and looted it for weapons before setting it on fire. Later Wednesday, an, uh, an outpost in western Mali's Kulikoro region was attacked by what authorities called terrorists, probably also JNM fighters. On Thursday, coordination of Azawad movements, or CMA rebels, attacked a base in central Mali's Mopti region, and according to the CMA, captured it. Mopti is further south than the CMA's usual stomping ground, but the group, that group only resumed its rebellion uh, a couple of weeks ago, so the scope of that conflict probably isn't all that well established at this point, uh, including things like its geographic center. Uh, in Niger, that country's ruling junta says that at least 12 of its soldiers were killed in an apparent jihadist attack in southwestern Niger's Tilaberi region on Thursday. Uh, there are Islamic State and Al-Qaeda elements active in that area, and it's unclear which, if either, was responsible for this attack. In Somalia, a car bombing killed at least six people and wounded another 14 in central Somalia's Hiran region on Thursday. Uh, the target was a crowded meat market. Uh, there were also reports of two attacks uh, in the city of Dusmareb in the Galgadud region that apparently did not cause any casualties. These were all presumably al-Shabaab operations, though I'm not sure that's been confirmed yet. Uh, over at Foreign Affairs, the International Crisis Group's uh, Sarah Harrison uh, wrote a piece arguing for a shift in U.S. policy towards Somalia, and I can read you a little bit of that piece. In one sense, Somalia has long been a footnote in the United States' war on terror. The administrations of Presidents George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump were focused on other regions. As a result, the United States failed to develop a long-term strategy focused on resolving the conflict in Somalia. At the same time, these presidents also sought to respond aggressively to the threat from al-Shabaab, emphasizing the links between the local militants and al-Qaeda, backing Ethiopian and African Union military interventions, and ramping up airstrikes. By now, the United States has become content to simply manage the problem through a containment strategy, one some U.S. officials have described as mowing the lawn or periodically shearing a shabab's capacities without seriously pushing for lasting peace in the suffering country. 
Now is the time to change tack. Next month, diplomats representing a so-called quintet of Somalia's most influential security partners, Qatar, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, the United Kingdom, and the United States, will meet with Somali leaders in Ankara. At this meeting, Washington should communicate a plan for peace based on stabilization and reconciliation, not solely on counterterrorism measures. This might sound like an expansion of the U.S. mission, an approach that is at odds with the goals of a president generally committed to winding down troubled military engagements overseas. But the truth is that al-Shabaab is unlikely to be defeated purely through military means. If the United States ever wants to withdraw its forces from Somalia for good, it must go beyond military containment and develop a Somalia strategy that prioritizes supporting reconciliation and helping Mogadishu stabilize its territorial gains. Washington cannot mow the Somali lawn indefinitely. It must instead support the growth of a peaceful Somalia that can function on its own. Uh, in Europe, in Ukraine, Russian shelling reportedly killed at least three people in the Kherson Oblast and two people in Donetsk Oblast on Thursday. The shelling came after a major overnight Russian drone barrage, including some 44 aircraft. Ukrainian officials say their air defense is down 34 of them and have not revealed whether the rest caused any significant damage. In Kosovo, President Vyosa Osmani on Thursday outright accused the Serbian government of complicity in Sunday's apparent insurgent, insurgent attack in northern Kosovo. I say apparent because as far as I know, there's still been no confirmation who the gunmen who participated in Sunday's attack on a Kosovan police patrol actually were or what their motive was. Serb nationalism is a reasonable assumption, but I'm not sure it's anything more than that at this stage. Serbian officials have denied any involvement in the incident, but both Osmani and Kosovan Prime Minister Albin Kurti have been suggesting that the affair could be fatal to hopes of normalizing relations between the two countries. In France, French President Emmanuel Macron spoke to the Corsican Regional Parliament on Thursday and suggested that he would try to, quote, establish a form of autonomy, end quote, uh, for the island. It's been about a year and a half since Corsica was gripped by widespread riots sparked by the murder of nationalist leader Ivan Colonna in a French prison. The Corsican Parliament has been agitating for autonomy and members appear to have welcomed Macron's remarks. He said he is aiming to have a plan in place to amend the French constitution to change Corsica's legal status within six months. Uh, and in the Americas, in the United States, finally, there is a new report from Brown University's Costs of War project that analyzes the true costs of the U.S. government's post-9-11 surveillance state. I'll read you the two-paragraph abstract from this. Uh, the United States has witnessed an explosive expansion of mass surveillance since the 9-11 attacks. This post-9-11 expansion is built on slavery, colonial occupation, and longstanding racism, as well as wartime spying and the war on drugs. Yet it is also markedly different from what existed before in both its technological capacities and its scale and breadth. This report illustrates how the pervasive fear, Islamophobia, and xenophobia weakened civil liberties protections and exponentially increased funding of the post-9-11 era enabled the unprecedented breadth and scale of surveillance reigning across the United States today. The report is, as comprehen is a comprehensive overview uh, of co the contemporary surveillance programs that emerged uh, in the post-9-11 landscape and illustrates their costly ramifications. These mass surveillance programs allowed the U.S. government to warrantlessly and incidentally vacuum up Americans' communications, metadata, and content and store their information in data centers and repositories, such as the database authorized by Section 702, a provision for reauthor up for reauthorization this year. 
the report illustrates how federal agencies also increasingly obtain data from private companies and track Americans using facial recognition, social media, geomapping, and other technologies. These efforts have particularly impacted Muslims, immigrants, and protesters for racial and labor justice and have cost untold dollars, normalized an erosion of privacy and freedom, and entrenched an expanding surveillance infrastructure that grows ever more difficult to control. Uh, other than that, though, I think it's been great. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe we should hear from both sides here. Uh, on that note, that's all for us tonight. Thank you, as always, for reading and or listening to the newsletter. Thanks to those of you who are foreign exchange subscribers, especially if you're paid foreign exchange subscriber. I know I say the same pitch uh, every time, but really... Uh, we really need your support here at the uh, the newsletter to keep it going. So if you haven't made that jump and you're appreciating the, uh, the coverage here, please consider becoming a paid subscriber. Uh, with that, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.